Nice to see all of you. My name is Darren. I'm one of the shepherds on staff. Excited to uh, jump back into Genesis with you again this week. We're in Genesis chapter 24, and you're probably wondering, well, it feels like we just read sort of a section in the middle there. Uh, This chapter, chapter 24 of Genesis, is the longest chapter in the whole book of Genesis. And the section we just read uh, is the servant of Abraham recapping what had occurred to him. So we thought it would be a decent summary of sort of the the gist of what's happening in the text. But we're actually going to walk through the whole chapter together here in just a second. Now, as we look at Genesis chapter 24, um, Genesis 24 serves as a bit of a transitional chapter. So we're seeing sort of a transition from the life and ongoing story of Abraham to the life and ongoing story of his son Isaac. And so this chapter serves to kind of set that up and build a bridge. And uh, in this story, what we see is that Abraham in his old age comes to his servant who in 24 is not named. And that's significant. We'll come back to in a second. But he comes to his servant and he says, hey, I want you to go back to the land from where I come from, the land of Ur, and I want you to find a wife for my son Isaac, right? Go back and find it. So um, the title of my message this morning is Four Easy Ways to Get Your Friend to Find You a Wife, right? So that's really easy. It's in the Bible. And if you've been in the hunt for a wife, I think you'll find this very practical. If you already have one, I don't know what to tell you. No, I'm just kidding. That's not my title at all. But, but I have heard this text taught that way, right? I've heard this Genesis 24 text taught as like, a, hey, here's a way to find a spouse or whatever. And it's not that that's wrong. There's actually a couple of different ways you could walk through this text and some important things to see. But for me, as we're looking at the last recorded words of Abraham in the book of Genesis, um, as we're seeing sort of the conclusion of his story in some ways, although he, he won't die until 25 next week, But in 24, we're seeing him at the end of his life really concerned about carrying on the legacy of faithfulness and and trust in God for his son that he himself has lived. And so uh, there's, there's some important principles here, but I will say that for me in trying to prepare the message for today, the thing that struck out the most to me and the thing I'd like us to focus on this morning together is the characteristics of a faithful servant serving his master. The characteristics of a faithful servant serving his master. Some of you who know me, you know that my favorite New Testament character is John the Baptist. And uh, he's not in, on every page. He's only just in a few select places. But the thing I love about John the Baptist is that he so faithfully points away from himself, right? He is not worried about building his own kingdom. He's not worried about whether he's got a long line of people to baptize or not. John the Baptist is entirely focused on pointing people to Jesus, And when we get to the Old Testament, there are lots of examples of this too. But one of the things I love in Genesis 24 is we have this servant here who is entirely preoccupied with doing something for which there is no benefit for him personally. He's serving his master Abraham by finding love and companionship and comfort for his master Isaac in the name of God. And that's relevant to all of us because as you know, we are called to be servants as well. The Lord Jesus was a servant. And he called us in following him to serve God and to serve others. So service and servanthood is a high priority for us as Christians. Jesus himself in John chapter chapter 13, verse 12, after he washes the disciples' feet, it says in John 13, 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then... Your Lord and teacher have washed your feet. You also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, 
Blessed are you if you do them. Jesus says, yes, I'm your master, I'm your teacher, I'm your Lord, and I'm, I'm setting you an example of service. And there is a blessing for you when you follow my example and you serve. Uh, Paul will say similar things, right? In Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, he says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So in Colossians 3, Paul says, hey, whatever you're doing, do it in service of God and others and recognize that no matter what the, what the specific occupation is or no matter what the specific endeavor is that you're engaged in, all of it should be done in service to God. We are the servants of God. Peter, similarly in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Good stewards of God's very grace. All of us are different. We've all got different gifts. We're wired different, different experiences, different backgrounds, different passions, different likes and dislikes. But no matter what God's put in your toolkit, he's put that in your toolkit to be used in stewardship and in service of other people for the glory of God. So servanthood is kind of the baseline for us as followers of Jesus, right? We sort of get like we're, we're meant to be giving ourselves away as we model Christ and reveal him and as we serve other people. So can I come to a text like Genesis 24 and I see this servant who's not named? Now, for what it's worth, some theologians believe that the, uh, that the servant who here is found in Genesis 24, his name might be Eleazar. And the place they get that name is from Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, you may remember if you've been in the study with us for a little while, that in Genesis 15, Abraham is complaining to God that he doesn't have a son, right? He complains to God and he says, look, You promised I was going to have a son. I don't have a son. And in fact, if I died right now, I'd have to give all my stuff as an inheritance to my senior servant, Eleazar. That's Genesis 15. He's in in the midst of sort of bemoaning the lack of a son. He says, I'd have to pass all these things on to my servant, Eleazar. So some people believe that here in 24, this is the same guy. It might be Eleazar, it might not. It's not really important. What I think is actually more important is that in 24, the name isn't mentioned. And I think that's significant because true service is not laboring or endeavoring to make a name for oneself. I think when Moses writes this chapter, he leaves the name out in some ways as a way to honor the servant in his faithfulness to Abraham and to Isaac without needing his name listed on the page. Now, as we walk through it today, if you've got one of our Genesis journals, I kind of want to invite you to do a couple things. I actually went through the text And I just wrote down, every time I saw a characteristic of faithful service in the life of this servant, I just wrote it down. Kind of a descriptive term, like this is what it is. And I did that as a catalyst for service in my own life. It's not an exhaustive list. I've got several things I want to share with you this morning. But if you've got one of our Genesis journals, here's my encouragement to you. As we walk through the text, and we're going to walk through it verse by verse, I would invite you just look at the model. Look at the example of the servant in Genesis 24. And recognize the characteristics. Yours might be the same as mine. You might come up with some different ones. You might find a different way to say the same thing. It doesn't really matter. What I'm I'm not inviting you to do this morning is to write down word for word my main points because I got a bunch of them and we're going to move really quick. So don't worry about, you know, getting the test right at the end. I don't care about that. What I want us to do as a family is to look at the example of this servant and compare it and contrast it with our own service of our master, the Lord Jesus the way we're serving Christ and the way we're serving others on Christ's behalf. So let's just walk through it together and look at the example or the demonstration of faithful service. It says in verse one, now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. 
Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. Now there's a couple interesting things here. I want to, I just as a side note, emphasize one thing. One of the things that I've been deeply blessed by in my time here at Fullerton Free is the number of people who are older or maybe uh, retired or maybe like retired plus a few years, people that maybe are in the last season of their life. We got lots of folks in this church who graduate straight from their adult fellowship into heaven. You know what I'm talking about? I love the fact that there are these people who are in maybe the late stages of their lives and they have not stopped passing the torch of faithfulness on to younger people. Does that make sense? That instead of just sort of sitting back and kind of riding it out and waiting for Jesus to come back or waiting to die, that they are still focused on saying, I want to make sure that not only my family, not only my kids and my grandkids, but that other followers of Christ, that I have the opportunity to impart this same pattern for faithfulness, the same pattern uh, for service, the same pattern for obedience, the same pattern for listening to God and being discerning. I love the fact that late in Abraham's life, he is still intensely focused on making sure that his son Isaac follows God the way he's followed God. I think when you get into the late stages of your life, and maybe this is the challenge for some of us who are in middle age or maybe uh, younger than that, I think the challenge for us is to be determined, to make a determination now in our life that we're not going to be the kind of people who check out when we get older. That we're not going to get to be the people in, in later stages where we get so focused on how much we've lost or how much things are changed or how achy or tired or whatever, because you know that's coming for all of us. But that even in the late stages of life, we'll follow the example of Abraham, the example of many in this church who've said, you know what? I'm not done passing the torch of faith onto other people until I go to heaven, right? Until my life is over, I will serve the cause of Christ and serve other people. We've got lots of people doing that. If you're here today and you'd say, man, I really want to be plugged in, passing on the torch to other people, we can get you plugged into small groups. We can get you plugged into mentors, uh, mentorships. We can get you plugged into service in a variety of ways. That's one of the great resources in this particular body. Abraham says to his servant, I want my son to have a wife from my own people. I don't want him to marry amongst the pagan Canaanites here. So I want you to go back to Ur and I want you to find him a wife from there. He says, uh, it might have caught you a little off guard. He says, I want you to put your hand under my thigh and swear an oath. That might feel a little weird. Don't try that at work this week, right? Just have people pinky swear, whatever. Nobody wants to put their hand under your thigh. It's creepy and weird. But the idea in this particular context is probably exactly what you're thinking. The idea was that Abraham was asking his servant to swear and to put his hand close to the center of his powers of procreation. Does that make sense? So he's saying, this is about my descendants after me. This is about the future. And the future is closely related to my thigh. That's so, so what you're imagining, that's exactly what's happening. Not necessarily something you need to uh, take on as a routine in your own life. He says, I want you to do this thing. Now let's look at the characteristics of the servant. Look at verse five. The servant said to him, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? This might seem goofy to you, but the first thing I wrote down here is I like the fact that the servant is engaged in the purpose of his master. He's not just taking instruction. He's not just writing down the things that Abraham has asked him to do, uh, you know, bullet pointed list. He's actually thinking it through. 
The very first thing he says to Abraham after Abraham says, I want you to go and find a wife for my son, is he says, okay, well, in the process of doing this, if she won't come back, then I suppose what I'm supposed to do is take Isaac back to them, and that'll be the way to solve the problem. I like the fact that there's some industriousness there, right? He's thinking actively, he's being proactive, and he's engaged with the master's plan and the master's purpose and working out the details of how, how to activate. I think a lot of times in our lives, as followers of our master, the Lord Jesus, we're committed to following exactly the things he specifically said, but we don't necessarily always do a good job of thinking about how to live in the gaps between the things that are explicitly stated. Does that make sense? It requires engagement. It requires a thinking and requires processing and requires thinking about what it means to live in our day and in our age. And what happens if I go this way and what happens if I go that way? The servant here is engaged in the master's purpose so much so that he says, well, what, what if I hit this fork in the road? Now, interestingly, the second thing I see is, is that he's teachable because he says, well, I'll come and take your son back. And this is Abraham's response in verse six. Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife from my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine, only you must not take my son back there. So not only do I see that the servant is engaged in Abraham's purpose, but I see that the servant is teachable, right? That he's teachable because he's got this plan. He says, I'll just take Isaac there. And the master says, no. Abraham says, do not do that under any circumstances. In fact, if the woman won't come with you, the deal is off. You're released from the oath. I do not want my son Isaac to travel back there because God has given us this land. And he's promised to provide for us here. And I want him to occupy this land. Well, sometimes when we get corrected like that, sometimes when the master, whether it's the Lord Jesus or your boss at work, comes along and says, uh, I don't want you to do it this way. I want it to do, do it this way. It can be a tendency in us for our pride to kind of rear up, right? And instead of being teachable, we sort of get our egos hurt. Or we feel like we've been, you know, set at naught a little bit. I love the fact that the servant quickly makes this correction, right? It's not, not dissimilar from what we studied in Genesis, uh, in Genesis 4. Remember early in our study when Cain brings a sacrifice to God. And God looks on Cain's sacrifice with disdain, but on Abel's sacrifice with favor. And we said at the time, if Cain would have had the sensitivity and the heart to take the teaching of God, to take the reproof of God, he could have corrected his sacrifice and everything would have been fine. But instead of listening to God, who said, this is what I want and this isn't what I want, he, got his, he let his ego flare up. He wasn't teachable and it stirred up this sort of murderous rage in Cain. We want to be people who are engaged in the master's purpose and who are willing to be teachable along the way because sometimes our ideas aren't going to be good, right? And the only way we know that is if we listen and are corrected by God. So it says in verse 9, the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. The third thing I see here is that he's committed. He's committed to someone else's purpose and someone else's plan. This is, uh, for the record, this is what he's just sworn to do is to undertake a, a thousand mile plus journey that will take at least three months one way, right? So this isn't like a little thing you can do in an afternoon. I think for many of us, when we think about our followership of Christ, we like it to be nice and tidy, right? We want it to be something we can do over the course of a weekend. Or maybe it's as simple as just coming to a 70-minute worship service on Sunday and we feel like we've done the deal. But the reality is that walking with God and serving our master is a lifelong endeavor. It takes everything. It takes all our time and all our effort. 
I love the fact that this servant swears to do this thing knowing that it's going to take him away from the job where he's at and his family potentially and whatever else that he is committed to the master's purpose. And look at verse 10. It says, Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. The, the fourth thing I want you to see here, or at least that I saw, that I love about his service of the master is he's strategic. He's not just throwing up his hands and going, all right, I'm going to travel to the place that Abraham told me, and then I don't know what's going to happen after that. We'll just kind of wait and see. No, he thinks it through. Because if I understand what the master's asked me to do, if I understand what Abraham's asked me to do, where's the best place to find a wife? Well, all the women of the town are going to come out at a certain time to draw water. So I'm going to post up there, and I'm going to take these camels, and I'm going to just hang out and wait to see what God will do. I like how strategic he is in that. That there's faith involved, but there's also action, right? He's really processing and using his intellect to think about the best way to accomplish the master's purpose. I think as disciples living in 2022, we have to be thinking actively about how best to accomplish the master's purpose in our context. At the corner of Bastin, Cherry, and Brea, in the schools we go to or the workplaces where, where we're employed. We have to be thinking it through. That strategic mind is vital, I think. I, uh, I, I may have told some of you the story, but I, when I worked at the church in Long Beach, we came up with this plan to do these, like, we called them lift kits. They were these, like, homeless gift bag kind of things where we'd take, like, a gallon Ziploc baggie and we'd fill it with stuff like uh, bar, a bar of soap and toothpaste and toothbrush and a fresh pair of socks. And there was just, like, all kinds of stuff in there. And then we encouraged, we gave the people in the church a list of all the items to go in the bag. And then we encouraged the people in the church, make these bags and then just keep them in the glove compartment of your car. And when you see someone who's experiencing homelessness or you see someone that needs help, you can hand out one of these lift kits, just a way to be a blessing and go, hey, here's some stuff that might help you out. Well, we've been doing that program for like two months. And I had one of the older ladies in our church came to me and she goes, uh, hey, I want you to know I tried your thing with handing out socks and stuff to homeless people, but uh, they don't like it. And I was like, what do you mean they don't like it? And she goes, they don't like it. They got really mad at me. And I was like, they got mad at you because you tried to give them some soap or, you know, like, what do you mean? And she's like, well, to be honest with you, you know, I'm an older woman. I'm a widow. I don't want to get too close to homeless people because I don't want to put myself in danger. She's like, so I just stand, I go to the park where they're at and I just stand way off and I just throw the stuff at them from a distance. And I was like, well, that might be your first problem, right? It's a little, there's a little bit of like a disconnection. And she goes, well, also the big bags were really hard to throw. So I took all the stuff and I put it into a sandwich bag. So she'd taken all the stuff that was supposed to go in a gallon bag and she'd put it into a Ziploc sandwich bag, which essentially made it like a, like a care brick. I think we call it a care brick, right? Just like a rock of stuff. And then she stood at a distance in the park and hurled at homeless people, right? I'm impressed she had the upper body strength to pull that off, honestly. But what's going on there? Well, what's going on is she's got the right heart. She wants to care for people. She wants to do the right thing, but she hasn't really thought through strategically the best way to get those items into the hands of people who want them without creating disruption, right? I love the fact that the servant here is engaged. He's teachable. He's committed. He's strategic. And then look at this in 12. As he's lined up there by the well, it says, And he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink. And who, who shall say, 
drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. And before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her jar of water on her shoulder. The, the next point I want you to see is, is that he's prayerful. Prayerful. And actually, in this particular text, if you look at verse 12, where it says, and he said, O Lord God, that, that phrase, and he said, is actually a fairly common word that, that depicts conversational interaction. Right, So this isn't like a formal, formal kind of cultic religious prayer. He doesn't kneel all of his camels down by the well and then say, Lord, it is I, the servant, calling upon your power to preside. You know, like none of that. This is just him talking. It doesn't even say in verse 12 that he prayed. What it says is that he said. And the concept is that the servant is in action, also in conversation with God. That he's saying to God, here's my hopes and here's my prayers. Here's my expectation. This is what I'd love to see you do. I've seen you be faithful to my father Abraham, to my master Abraham. And here's what I'm looking for. Now, now before you get the idea here, by the way, that, uh, that the servant is setting up a hoop for God to jump through. Because it might feel like that a little bit. Like he's testing God. right? It might feel like he's saying, hey, if a woman comes and I ask her for water and she says, I'll give you water and I'll also do this other thing. Then I, you know, I want you to make that be the right woman. Well, that's not, that's not what's happening here at all. It's not that the servant is setting up a test for God, but rather that the servant has an honest understanding of who would be the best kind of a wife for his master. That she would be someone who would be generous and kind, who would be willing not only to serve him, but would take the initiative to go the extra mile and even serve the camels. So what the, what the servant here is doing is not giving God a test, but saying, would you point me to a woman who is the kind of woman that you would have Isaac be married to. It's not a miraculous test. It's just the servant's high standards and sensible reasoning aligned with God's heart and character. It might also be interesting to you how often the servant refers to the Lord's favor to Abraham. The Lord is favorable to Abraham. Show love and kindness to Abraham and provide this woman. Understand too that God has made this covenant with Abraham and everybody in Abraham's household recognizes the covenant with Abraham and sees themselves in some ways as like spiritual children of God's covenant with Abraham. So it's not that the servant doesn't himself have a relationship with God, but rather that he sees his relationship with God as connected to God's covenant to Abraham. So he's, he's prayerful here. And then I love this, this note, and this is an important little phrase in 15. It says, before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebecca, who is uh, Nahor's granddaughter, Rebecca comes out with water on her shoulder. That little, that little phrase before he had finished speaking. So here's the servant. He's knelt down all the camels by the well. He's been strategic to put himself in the right place at the right time. And he just says to God, like, will you, will you provide for me the right kind of woman to, be, to marry my master? And while he's praying, she shows up before he's finished. Well, what, what is that indicative of? Don't miss the note here because Moses is trying to tell you something when he writes this this way. He's trying to tell us that God was already on the move before the servants started to pray. Does that make sense? God had already prompted and provoked Rebecca. He was already working. In fact, in some ways, he was already answering the servant's prayer before the servant prayed it. Now, why is that important? Well, I think a lot of times we think of prayer as being like, let's get God to do something, right? Let's get God to do something. We're going to pray, and if we get enough people to pray, we'll get God to do the thing we want him to do. That isn't what prayer is. Prayer is about seeking alignment with the heart of God and alignment with the pre-existing purpose of God 
So that when we pray for things, God's, God's already moving in that direction. Anyway, I love the fact that she shows up before he's even done praying. That God's faithfulness is working hand in hand with the faithfulness of this servant. That's how it plays out in our lives as well. It's never us acting independently. It's always us acting in alignment with the faithfulness of God. God's faithfulness in conjunction with the faithfulness of his servant. So Rebecca shows up and she's got this jar of water on her shoulder. Look at verse 16. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, please give me a little water to drink from your jar. I don't want to make too big of a deal out of this, but I like the fact that he moves towards her instead of expecting her to come to him. And he asks her politely, so I, I wrote in my notes here the idea of courtesy, that he's courteous. He runs to this woman and he asks her, will you please give me a drink? As opposed to waiting for her, because he's the man, right? Waiting for her to come and then being like, hey, I got me and all these camels and we need some help. The only reason I mention that is I think sometimes as, as servants of the master Jesus, I think sometimes we're waiting for people to come to us and when they do, we make demands of them as opposed to looking for the people that God has sent us to to try and identify them in our circle and moving towards them to serve them with courtesy and kindness. I like the fact that he asks the question the way he does. The servant ran to meet her, verse 17, and said, please give me a little water to drink from your jar. And she said, drink, my Lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all his camels. By the way, that's not like something you do in 15 minutes. You want to satisfy 10 camels who've been on on a three-month journey? She's probably hours back and forth to the trough, right? This is a woman who's committed to do this thing. She quickly emptied her jar of the trough and ran again to draw water for the camels. Verse 21, the man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. Uh, you could read this and be like, creepy, right? This is a little creep. Like she's running back and forth, delivering water to the camels, and he's just kind of watching from a distance, gazing at her in silence. Okay, I get how that might feel a little weird. But you know what I see in that is I see a man who's concerned about discerning accurately what God is doing, right? He's not being creepy. He's not being weird. He's watching from a distance. He's watching for a distance to be discerning about whether or not this is just his own mind here that's leading him to this woman or whether this is truly the hand of God. And he's watching her faithfully serve to the point where he becomes convinced that this is God's movement, that this is God in front of him. It says in 22, when the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her arms wearing 10 gold shekels. And he said, please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord. The first thing here that I want you to see in this little section is his generosity. He gives her this gold stuff, even though she hasn't promised anything. He hasn't even made an offer yet, right? There is no deal. This isn't an exchange. He just blesses her with generosity. And you might look at that and go, yeah, okay, sure, he's generous, but he's just giving her what he got out of his master's storehouse, right? So the things he's giving to her aren't his things. Those are Abraham's things that he's giving away. Well, guess what? Every opportunity you and I have to be generous in our interactions with other people comes out of the master's storehouse. You don't have anything either. You got nothing. All you've got is stuff that God gave to you. All of the things you have, the ability to give away to other people, God gave to you first. So that's all he's doing here. He's being generous. He's giving away his master's things 
to someone in kindness. And we have the opportunity to do that in our service of our master as well. Not only that, she says, I am the granddaughter of Nahor. That's Abraham's brother. So all of a sudden, everything clicks. He's been watching her. The light comes on. He realizes this is of God. This is the thing he's praying for. And so next, I would want you to see this attribute. In verse 26, the man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord. And he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. And then the young woman ran and told her, mother, uh, told her mother's household about these things. The, the idea here is that I see this servant as being grateful. You could use the word worshipful if you want, but, but the gratitude that I see in the heart of the servant here is a gratitude that recognizes that everything has clicked into place and that none of it had to do with him. He doesn't go, yeah, I did it. I did the thing Abraham asked me to do. He's going to be so proud. I'll probably get a raise. I might get a little bit better place to live. Who knows? It's going to be awesome when we get home because Abraham's going to be stoked with the servant. What? Right? No, what does he do? He goes, praise God who's been faithful to my master just like he's always been faithful to my master. And even for me, he's the one who led me to the right place at the right time. There is an acknowledgement from the servant that the good that has transpired has no work of his own, even though we could look at it and see that he made some good choices. But it's a recognition that all of it comes from God. There's a sense of gratitude and worship that rolls out of this guy. Now, as we keep going, Rebecca runs to her family. Rebecca had a brother. His name was Laban. He'll come up again later when we read the story of Jacob. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. And as soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms, and he heard the words of Rebecca, his sister, thus the man spoke to me, he went to the man. And behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. And he said, come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I've prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Verse 33, then food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He said, speak. The next, the next thing I see here is a man who's willing to be sacrificial. We talk about that a lot in this church, about the fact that we are united in sacrifice. That all of us, in order for us to be a family and in order for us to truly be the body of Christ, end up laying ourselves down in service of God and the good of other people. Here he's got a meal that's placed in front of him. He's been on this long journey. They put this food in front of him. And before he'll even eat the food, he's like, wait, I I don't want to satisfy myself until I've done the thing my master asked me to do. You can see where his priorities are. His priorities are not in taking care of himself, but in accomplishing the thing that his master has called him to do. So they say to him, all right, tell us a story. And that's where then we pick up in verse 34 with the part we read at the beginning. And it might feel like redundancy to you. As you think back to the reading we had at the beginning of the service, you might go, wow, he just kind of repeats all the things we've already said. But remember, it's redundancy for us as a reader, but it wouldn't have been redundant for Laban and Bethuel and for Milcah. It wouldn't have been redundant for them at all. It wouldn't have been redundant for Rebecca. They didn't know all these details. So what's the servant doing when he repeats the story in great detail? It feels redundant to us, but all he's doing, he's a servant that is revelatory. And that's one of the characteristics I wrote down. He's in the process of telling the story of God on the move that he doesn't go, oh, well, it's a long story and I don't want to bore you with it. But let me just say, I came here to find a wife and I think Rebecca's the right one. Here's some gold stuff. Can we go? No, he goes, listen. God, who has been faithful to my master Abraham and has blessed him with all these things, he came to me, Abraham came to me and he said, I want you to go to the land of my forefathers. And he lays the whole thing out. Why? Why? Because he wants those people to see God revealed as well. 
for us in serving our master, the Lord Jesus, it's important not for us just to be aware of God on the move, but for us to declare God on the move to the people around us. And sometimes you might have to tell a story three and four times. It'll feel redundant to you, but not to the new audience who gets to see and hear the faithfulness of God. By the time he gets to the end of the story in verse 49, Laban in verse 50, Laban and Bethuel answered and said, the thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go. and Let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. And when Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. Servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. He made the men who were with him, uh, and he and the men who were with him ate and drank. They spent the night there. And when they arose in the morning, they said, send me away to my master. And the next principle I wrote here is an urgency, right? The servant is anxious to be about his master's work. He's anxious to get back on the road. Let's go. Now we'll see in the text, and we don't have to read all of this, but Laban and Milcah and Bethuel, they, they kind of want to stall, right? They want to slow things down. So they go, oh, how about if Rebecca stays here another 10 days? And they look at Rebecca, and the servant says, no, I, I want to get on the road. And they look at Rebecca, and Rebecca says, no, I'm, I'm willing to go. It says in 58, they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. And they traveled back home. The, the last part of the chapter here we see in verse 62. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahai Roy and was dwelling in the Negev. By the way, now this is months later, of course, because of the return trip. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel. And said to the servant, who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, it is my master. And she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah. And she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. The last thing I want you to see as I look, and again, this isn't an exhaustive list, but for me, I was deeply moved by the loyalty of this servant, not only to Abraham, but also to Isaac. When they come back on the scene, it's kind of a romantic scene here at the end, right? Who's, I, don't, I don't know how to read that, but maybe she's like, who's the man walking in the, uh, uh, who's that hottie in the field? I don't know. And he says, that is my master. He doesn't say that's the son of my master. He says, that is my master. He understands that there's a transitioning happening. And if this is Eleazar, for what it's worth, if you remember from Genesis 15, if this is Eleazar, before Isaac came around, Eleazar was the one who stood to inherit all of Abraham's possessions. And now with the presence of Isaac on the scene, there, there could be potential, if that's who this is, there could be potential for resentment and bitterness, for jealousy, because he was gonna get rich and now Isaac's gonna get rich. And yet we see none of that here. What do we see? We see loyalty. Loyalty to the master, to the master's son, to the master's purpose. And as a result, what we see here is a combination of the faithfulness of God working in conjunction with the faithfulness of a servant to produce comfort and love and blessing at a difficult time in his life. It might feel a little weird to you this last part. In fact, we were talking after the last service about the fact that it, it feels like a little bit of a downer. If you're a new wife, right? You show up and he's like, hey, let me take you into the tent of my dead mom, you know? And like, oh, now we're married. I feel a lot better about the fact that my mom died. You know, and you'd be like, can we talk about your mom so much, right? But there is a sense in which the loss of his mother is weighing heavy on his heart and God provides a wife for him. Not that that's the only focus, but God provides a wife for him as a way to comfort and bless him. That's why this note is here at the end. That he marries Rebecca. She's the woman that God provided. But how did God do that? Here, here's, here's the way I'll finish. 
Abraham could have found a wife for Isaac another way. You get that, right? Like, we could probably put our heads together and think of 10 or 20 other ways that Abraham could have found or procured a wife for his son. But he chooses to involve his servant so that both his, his son will have a blessing, but also that his servant gets to participate in the fulfillment of God's promise. Does that make sense? He includes the servant because he knows God will fulfill his promise. And by including the servant, he gives the servant an opportunity to experience and enjoy that faithfulness as well. You recognize that the God of the universe could have chosen any way he wanted to to reach the people in Fullerton and the people in Brea and the people in Placentia and La Habra. You know he could have chosen any way he wanted to reach the people in the city with love and compassion and grace and goodness and kindness with the gospel. He could have chosen, he could have taken over every billboard on the front of every restaurant. He could have taken over all the cloud formations. He could have, uh, you know, we've talked about it before. There are limitless ways God could use to reach the, the world with the gospel. And you know how he's chosen to do it? He's chosen to use his servants, you and me, his ambassadors. Not because he had to, not because his options were limited, but because he knew he would fulfill his promise and he wanted to invite us into the joy of experiencing that fulfillment as a part of the story. I think sometimes, maybe some of you, when I started this message today talking about service, you're like, oh great, here it comes. It's gonna be like a guilt trip. We gotta serve more. We gotta do this. We gotta do that. All these things, right? Listen, none of that. If you think about serving your master, the king of the universe, the Lord Jesus, if you think of that as a drudgery or as a burden or as like a weight around your neck, you've missed it. God doesn't need your help. Release yourself from the obligation. He's not forcing anybody to serve him. He is blessing you with the opportunity to serve. He will fulfill his purposes either way. And he invites us to be his servants so that his faithfulness coupled with our faithfulness will result in compassion and joy, generosity and kindness for those who are brokenhearted in the world in which we live. It's not a drudgery. It is an absolute privilege to be invited into the story and to serve our master, the way this man serves his master as well. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would, uh, that you would help us flip that switch. Maybe, you know, that there is a part of us that feels like, Oh, I don't want more to do. I can't handle anymore. Like what's all this talk about service. Would you help us just to be released of that? That the mindset or the perception of, of following you that might feel like uh, a burden that you would turn us loose of it, that you'd set us free of it, and we would see what a great gift it is to be included, that you could reach the world any way you want, and yet you've given us the message of reconciliation. You've given us the role of ambassadors, and there is a joy in engaging with that and discerning it and being generous, all the things we've seen. There's a joy in being your representative in the midst of your mission for your glory and the good of others. We pray that in Christ's name, amen.